What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory by Scott Christensen. Overview. Reconciling the existence of God and evil has been a long-standing conundrum in Christian theology. Yet, a philosophical approach rather than a theological one dominates the discussion. Turning to the Bible's grand storyline, Scott Christensen examines how sin, evil, corruption, and death fits into the broad outline of redemptive history. He argues that God's ultimate end in creation is to magnify his glory to his image bearers, most notably by defeating evil through the atoning work of Christ. Review. You can find a breakdown chapter by chapter look at this book from cavetothecross.com apologetics podcast, and uh, that link is uh, here below. What Scott Christensen has done here is provide a scholarly and biblical undertaking on the alleged problem of evil. With a brief overview of the history of philosophy in chapter 2, and then dealing with some of the main explanations uh, for theodicy, Christensen points out the flaws both philosophical and scripturally with them. He provides a fair and at times praiseworthy when called for uh, uh, to look at them. Some of the discussions around the free will theodicy will sound familiar from the previous book, uh, his previous book, What About Free Will?, but is important to the discussion. This isn't your normal, dry, and academic look at the problem of evil. Christensen gives you the answer right on page six and comes from the Reformed perspective. After critiquing the other views, he launches into providing support for his view. And just like the Reformed perspective does and what his view calls for, Christensen goes into a beautiful discussion of what of who God is, his nature, Jesus' incarnation, the ramifications of God's work in creation. All these add up to and lead up to the putting the point on the fact that God is the ultimate focus of scripture, creation, history, yes, and even in the theodicy. Two chapters that should be viewed of high value is the chapter on God being a storyteller, taking a page from kind of Jordan Peterson, but putting it through the Reformed Christian perspective, this chapter probably provided me with some of the most spiritually rich and useful action in applying and living out my Christian faith. No small feat from a scholarly book on the problem of evil. Another chapter in a few pages takes an amazing breakdown on of the important Christian concept is the chapter on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There was a lot of notes and underlying here and would be a great standalone chapter to give someone on the greatness and glory of the incarnation. I believe this book does what it needed to do. What other scholarly work, works tend to fail to do and does what it did well enough that it sits at the top of my recommendation for the subject. While there might have been a few chapters that could have been boiled down for the purposes of space and focus on actual theodicy, the same case can could be made to expand the book further with more focus on different aspects of God's nature. Even the final chapter on putting the theodicy into practical living should have been longer with a focus more on action points for the Christian walk. However, that could have been another book in and of itself, and from this book, I found myself applying what I was reading to my own walk and in answering questions of faith from those of six-year-olds to new Christians to general discussions on life, politics, and faith. This book is a great tool and useful addition to the topic of the alleged problem of evil. I highly recommend this book for anyone who has a slight interest in the subject and wants an amazing tool that will challenge you to glorify God and put him in his rightful place as the apex of life. Final grade, A+. Travels in the Land of Serpents and Perils by Marco Polo. Overview. You will hear it for yourselves, and it will surely fill you with wonder. In this section from Marco Polo's famous travel book, the intrepid Venetian describes the customs of India, recounts the story of kings who died 84 times, and explains how to retrieve diamonds from snake-infested caves. Review. 
To view this book as an actual book misses the mark. Penguin Publishing has taken a letter to a king from the explorer Marco Polo as the account of his travels to India. Marco Polo isn't an author of a nonfiction story set to transport the reader into a semi-mystical realm of serpents and pearls. This is an explorer trying to get across the idea of a foreign land filled with foreign people with a foreign culture that is on the border to the West and desired for the wealth of trade it was bringing. The studded way of Polo may through one off, I will tell you, or let me tell you, or an another thing, you don't get any fluff. What you do get is someone trying to relate the oddness to a king who isn't an absolute monarch and who has a higher calling to subjects and kingdoms and God and who is trying to amass wealth and power like any sovereign at the time. And he is able to relate because his comments of the kings and people in the area are focused on the subjects, kingdoms, gods, religions, cultures in the area. Polo is giving a record to those who would most relate to the subjects he covered. So this review isn't about a wax poet or lack thereof of Polo's account, but it was an interesting account of an outside perspective doing the best job he could to describe accurately what he saw. And for that, I quite enjoyed the taste. Final grade, B. How We Weep and Laugh at the Same Things by Michael de Montaigne. Overview. No one character clasps us purely and universally in its embrace. A selection of charming essays from a master of the genre, exploring the contradictions inherent to human thought, words and action review a collection of short essays from the man responsible for the essay form i didn't think i would enjoy it as much as i did and stem from the length and depth while not excelling in either depth being how much montaigne bolstered his opinions they were an interesting take for someone writing in the mid 1500s essay one how we weep and laugh at the same time from a storyteller's perspective, this was an interesting one. Montaigne talks about how one can have compelling, conflicting, and multiple emotions at the same time. As a result, looking at men in history, we couldn't just say they had an experience, and that experience is one dimension. And to say a display of emotion and comment on a different emotion one would feel at the same time would be a lie, is shallow, and is an illogical notion. One of the best examples he gives is Julius Caesar holding uh, Pompey's head, and while in victory and against the odds, he can still feel sad at the loss of a friend, rival, and happy at the, mo uh, at the memories of their times before this moment. An interesting look at what stories were being told at the time. Essay 2, Unconscious. He speaks on the understanding if someone would do something right or wrong, it would drive them to bravery when right, or weakness when wrong. This one seemed, has some interesting points, but needed to be fleshed out more. I guess if you're inventing the essay, it's still a work in progress. Essay 3. Fortune is often found in reason's train. A very interesting uh, persuasive essay on fortune, uh, read today as providence, happens in the world, and so much of it that to leave it up to the understanding of blind random chances seems to undercut the poetic hilarity God provides. Not a bad take from a Frenchman. Essay 4. On punishing cowardice. Interesting premise on punishing cowardice based on fear and cowardice based on malice. The malice part is quickly dealt with as it seems to engage those who inflict harm or loss. Cowardice based on fear like that of someone going AWOL from the military. Montaigne argues should be punished in a similar fashion. Again, way too short for the topic that would be intriguing for the time and place of the author. However, he gives his opinion and tends to end it with the essay. That's that. Essay 5 on the vanity of words. 
It seems like Montaigne has someone specific in mind as he writes against those who, on, who base their lives on words only rather than actions. He argues that one could be intelligent, able to recite deep thinkers, and pull quotes from scholars. It doesn't do any good if the follow-up isn't movement in one's life. Again, too short, but a take that is worth exploring and ripe to be addressed today. Essay 6. To philosophize is to learn how to die. A roller coaster of emotions here in the vein of lamentations. Montaigne comes close at times to pronounce everything as vanity, vanity. He seems to write his emotional and logical states into the section. He focuses on death as he fears it, and he believes rightly so, especially as a learned man. This leads him into a morose opinion that death comes to us all and we should be ready. A slight light seems to break as he focuses on the fact that death is the end of the fear of death, and only part of the coverage is on the afterlife. He even loops in the fact that death is an experience everyone will take, so at least we'll be in good company. Towards the end, he seems to try the cheerily impress upon the reader that it's best not to take death so seriously, but the focus on death will lead to freedom from the fear of it. All the essays are too short for the modern reader, yet having six short essays from the man who invented the essay and in different time periods and from the different places kept my interest and provided insight into just how similar man has always been and how we've wanted to communicate that to others through writing. Final grade, B. Anthem for a Doomed Youth by Wilfred Owen. Overview. Tonight he noticed how women's eyes passed from him to strong men that were whole. The true horror of the trenches it brought to life in this section of poetry from the front line. Review. I freely admit that I'm not the most well-read when it comes to poetry. I view it much like music or visual arts. If I enjoy it, then I like it. Owen definitely hit the sweet spot for me. Owen is a prominent World War I poet who is not outright anti-war, but his writings are that which does not glorify war at all. One of his most famous poems is likely Dulce de Decorum Est, which has the Latin phrase, It's glorious for one to die for his country, in a satirical sense. My absolute favorite one was called The Letter, and Owen does an amazing emotional story in one page. He takes a dual conversation structure with one he's writing a letter to his wife to make his daily life some banal and everyday struggle as if he were home with her. And with the other, he's experiencing a call to get ready for battle and the aftermath. It is a pretty emotional story. As with any other poet, there will be some that hit, some that miss, and it depends on your mood, interest, and focus on the material. A front lines look at the poet in the heart of, of it during the Great War, and it shows the valuableness of the medium and the agony of war. And I would highly recommend uh, Stephen Rose's uh, wonderful uh, take on this in uh, the Anarcho-Christian podcast that he did that will be linked below. Final grade, A-. How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nakamatsu. Overview. For fans of Cloud Atlas and Station Eleven, a spellbinding and profound present debut that follows a cast of intricately linked characters over hundreds of years as humanity struggles to rebuild itself in the aftermath of a climate plague, a daring and deeply heartfelt work of mind-bending imagination from a singular new voice. Beginning in 2030, a grieving archaeologist arrives at the Arctic Circle to continue the work of his recently deceased daughter at the Badakata Crater, where researchers are studying long-buried secrets now revealed in melting permafrost, including the perfectly preserved remains of a girl who appears to have died of an ancient virus. 
Once unleashed, the Arctic Plague will reshape life on Earth for generations to come, quickly traversing the globe, forcing humanity to devise the myriad of moving and inventable ways to embrace the possibility in the face of tragedy. In a theme park designed for terminally ill children, a cynical employee falls in love with a mother desperate to hold on to her infected son. A heartbroken scientist searching for a cure finds a second chance at fatherhood when one of his subjects, one of his test subjects, a pig, develops the capacity for human speech. A widowed painter and her teenage daughter embark on a cosmic quest to locate a new home planet. From further, from funerary skyscrapers to hotels for the dead, in interstellar starships, Sakoya Nakamatsu takes the readers on a widely original and compassionate journey spanning continents, centuries, and even celestial bodies to tell a story about the resiliency of the human spirit, our infinite capacity to dream, and the connective threads that tie us all together in the universe. Review. I usually don't like comparing the book's uh, tropes anymore, but I viewed this book to be in similar style to World War Z, but with a few big problems, where World War Z told the story of zombie apocalypse in the interview style of first-person perspective that unfolds the world and actions undertaken by humanity in the dealings with Zeke. Uh, this story is told from a first-person perspective vignette of people in a world where a mysterious, possibly paranormal virus begins infecting the world. Like any collection like this, you'll have ones that you like and ones that you don't. The best one was definitely the not-Mickey-Mouse uh, costume or comedian who worked as an amusement park for kids who were sick and would have one last day of joy before taking a ride on a roller coaster that would pull 10 Gs three different times and peacefully kill them. It was the most impactful of doing what should be done in these types of story structures. It offers you an intimate look at one facet of life that has changed as a result of the greater thing happening in the world of the story. It's not going to provide you every detail that you want, but offer insights for you to build and piece together what the greater plot involves. The book does this fairly well. There are some details that are told to you in a way an interview would take place, but there are a few details you could pick out that build the world as the story progresses over the story's timeline. The weaker stories are fine, but didn't offer as much impact as one that I really did like. There are three stories that didn't make much sense of having so little impact, which felt like big misses of opportunity to really build the world out. No spoilers here. Uh, the first was the father of the first girl to die of the virus of, in Antarctica. The otherworldly nature of the origins of the virus was lost in this droll beginning. I had to get more detail from the back of the book than I did the story. Another was a story of those who were maybe dead or asleep or something paranormal. It really wasn't an explanation for what the deal was with that was, and the fact that it was still in first-person form kind of took away from the interview-like motif the book seemed to be going for. The other missed opportunity was from the woman of the virus origin. It stops way too early in her story, and while you could see why it was included there, there was no real reason to stop before the virus comes to the modern world. There are a couple things that stop this story from being really good. I will refer to World War Z a few times because uh, where that story worked because of these elements, this story wasn't as grounded. The first was a lack of individual accomplishments to the overall story, where World War Z had many individuals who made massive strides that affected the full world. This story had no one. There are mentions and even focus of stories of individuals who are working to stop the virus, but any reports from characters put the focus on governments or scientists or groups. For a story where your storytelling element is from individuals, this loss of realism where developments and breakthroughs happen in the real world by individualism seems odd. 
the second part is ironic in that it fails to take on the bigger consequences of death on people. In World War Z, characters and stories show the worldwide cultural shift of having to deal with zombies. Kids don't swim in the shallow water. Uh, People become more religious or less religious. Uh, Death is dealt with in different ways since it's always a bite away. And yes, the story has those moments like the amusement park of joy and death. However, it doesn't show how the world is impacted from a psychological and sociological level. Again, there are stories that give bigger hints than others. Hotels designed to prep for death or robot dog repairs that preserve loved ones. But the story presents industries rising up to capitalize on the body count, but it doesn't do so with a greater amount than what we already have now. Death is on the door at all times and people die every day. What happens when that's even closer, more consistently? The biggest flaw of the book is the lack of religion. I know, I know. Ta- me talking about Christianity uh, in, in a book review seems uh, a, a, a bit uh, basic. Uh, but there's, no, there's a lack of religion and there's also a lack of hope. There is your stereotypical and must-have lines about the end is near preachers, uh, but major and dramatic changes to the entire world within the scope of the book. The, the absence of religion makes the book feel too divorced from reality. A mysterious girl frozen in ice that upends how humanity views its place in history and a major deadly disease infects the world and especially kids. Science experiments that would affect how we view ourselves. The intersection of technology and memories, interstellar travel, etc. The silence of religion in the story is deafening. This isn't the case of, oh, they can't include everything, rings hollow as it would if the story failed to talk about the impact of death. And on the same vein, the absence of hope devoid the realism of the science fiction. There is no individuals to look to. There is no religion to believe in. There is no life to live. There is not even a spark of hope discussed. In a world where a virus is killing people and children uh, that causes individuals to almost exclusively be death-focused, there's no hope. Why keep going on in life? Why seek out life on another world? Why have new children? Why continue to go to work? Why are there farmers? Why is, what, where's the economic impact? Where's the one piece of metaphysical necessity that drives all great sci-fi? Where's the looking up instead of looking down that any story about death needs unless you end in a world like The Road by Cormac McCarthy, where even the bleak story had hope? In World War Z, you had the notions become theocracies. In World War Z, you had nations become theocracies. You had people put their trust in individuals, showing ways forward. You had people look to keep fighting because the stories offered a way out of the present darkness. The opposite happens here, where one has to wonder why suicide isn't discussed at all. It's a missing puzzle piece that science fiction is based on Christianity, is absent, but story elements that would be perfect for discussing the impact it would greatly have. Even if the author killed off religion and Christianity in particular, it would treat the story in the realm of reality. Instead, you get a takeaway of death is super sad and affects people, but we get by with continuing on and advancing the species through some evolutionary process, which the book undermines in the end. You can't have it both ways. All that being said, I enjoyed the book and parts that have stuck with me, which I look for in something of this nature. While the sci-fi futuristic elements tend to come out of nowhere, it does a good job of presenting the variety of different stories for one to hold on to. Death is sad and has an impact in different ways on some. The missing elements are what limits the from being a good book. Comparing it to World War Z is never going to put it on the same level, but it should be grateful just to be nominated. Final grade, B-minus.
Fighting for Holiness, Crossway Short Classic Series by J.C. Ryle. Overview. May we never forget that without fighting, there can be no holiness while we live and no crown of glory when we die. J.C. Ryle. True Christianity is a fight, wrote J.C. Ryle in 1877. He argued that from the day of their conversion until the day they die, Christians are called to be soldiers for Christ in a war for their holiness. This inspiring call to action written more than 100 years ago continues to be a source of great encouragement and inspiration for believers today. In this edition of the Crossway Short Classic series, Ryle explains why the fight for holiness is one of absolute necessity for Christians. Identifying the three main enemies of every believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil, he emboldens them to either fight or be lost in their daily battle and offers biblical and historical examples of notable Christian soldiers. Fighting for holiness is a bold reminder for believers to daily put on the whole armor of God and train their eyes on Christ. Review. What I like about Crossway Short Classics is that they provide context to the author and setting in which the writing occurs. If you never understood when Calvin wrote The Institutes or he was in his 20s when he wrote it, picking Andrew Atherstone to talk about Ryle and when he was writing provides a great insight to what Ryle was responding to. A movement had come through that said at salvation, the end of anything of Christian fighting and conforming one to the image of Christ was passive, only to be undertaken by God or on someone. Taken from Ryle's holiness, its nature, hindrance, difficulties, and roots. As for the series from Crossway, their intent is to provide a short snippet from the greater works, like Ryle's holiness. In a world where we start sweating when someone suggests a 300-page book that changes many hearts and minds through the span of its publication, these short classics offer a good entry point that points to the greater work. What works best about this volume is that it really shows why Ryle was writing against passive Christianity. His understanding is to show that the Christian life is one of fighting and it's a three-pronged enemy against self, the flesh, the world, and the devil. It's interesting to see where Christianity currently is comes from a direct result of this type of passive thinking. Let go and let God comes from this era. But the Christian life is about fighting against the devil, clearly, and the world that attempts to draw one in and thus away from God. The sanctification process is clearly expressed in Scripture, occurs right after justification, and the collapse of the two into one comes from the Roman Catholic understanding and is opposed to biblical teaching. The pruning, the positive, and the chastening, the negative, that comes with growing and conforming to the heart of Christ is the struggle and thus a fight. To never be growing in that way is a clear sign of a dead faith. Ryle makes this point clear and concisely. This gives him a route to talk about the proper role of faith, a.k.a. trust in God in the Christian life. Where it begins at salvation, it's a necessary and pleasing virtue that drives a Christian forward. So having this for a new Christian or one feeling likely that they're stagnant in their walk will get a lot of value from this book. However, and this is the only negative I could levy against Ryle, is that if you already know this, you'll agree with it, but it's kind of standard Christian teaching. The intended target is not directly you. But again, that's not to say that hearing the gospel for those of us saved is ever a bad thing. So too, hearing about the call to arms and the struggles we face should always keep our feet moving to God's throne. Final grade, B. The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way and No Little People, Crossway Short Classic Series by Francis A. Schaefer. Overview. Christians serving the Lord can fall into two traps, depending too heavily on their own power or underestimating their God-given purpose. In this collection of classic sermons, renowned theologian and philosopher Francis Schaefer teaches believers how to rely on the Holy Spirit, not personal effort or status, in matters of service and leadership. This short book includes ex- excerpts from 
Schaefer's sermons, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way, plus two sermons from the book, No Little People, covering topics including humility and servanthood, Christian office, spiritual battles, and trusting God's method. Schaefer encourages pastors, students, and church members to live as consecrated people, working humbly for God's approval instead of human praise. Classic Timely Messages powerfully addresses common issues for the church, including spiritual pride, humanism, and how to live as consecrated people. Review. I've been liking the series from Crossway Short Classics. They provide a snippet of a longer book from an influential Christian and talk about who the person was, what the settings were, writing in or against, and an overview of the longer book. This encourages some who may not want to have more than your average taste for a book before committing oneself to the longer work. With this work by the great Francis Schaeffer, you get two for the price of one. While others in this series come from books, these come from sermons Schaefer gave, so you get a taste of Schaefer you might not have gotten before uh, as him as a preacher. However, if you know Schaefer, he's an evangelist at heart, and even his books have a flair of sacred sermon. The first section, titled The Lord's Work and the Lord's Way, speak on how in our Christian walk or in our lives as Christians, we overemphasize reliance on our own power, but forget about relying on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not our position or status where the ends justify the means. It's about reliance on who God is to strengthen the understanding of our creator-creature distinction. That is the reason we are given what we are for his glory. The second section, titled No Little People, was actually a really fun and important message that surprised me. I enjoy being surprised by Schaefer anytime. Here he talks in a similar vein of the above but on focusing on who God is, his role in the sanctification process, and in not getting down on ourselves if we don't feel big enough to be useful to God in the ministry areas he has given us in our lives. Schaefer points to God needing to be our focus, not just in our thoughts, but also in our actions. One of my favorite parts of this is Schaefer's warning of a person, even an influential minister, wanting to grow their ministry so as to have more influence so they can at least on their justification, to have a greater impact for God. He warns that while even the best intentions are sought, and they are not always the case, that having the bigger capture of influence might distract them, having the quiet relationship with God that allows them the position they are in and more easily slippage into distraction one could have. I really found that portion insightful, convicting, and fascinating. It shows the struggle that Schaefer might have had with forming Libri or being more or less public speaker. I thought this was a very insightful message for a very insightful man. Final grade, A. Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words by Michael Pack and Mark Patel. Overview. Born into dire poverty in the segregated South and abandoned by his father as a child, Justice Clarence Thomas triumphed over seemingly insurmountable odds to become one of the most influential justices on the Supreme Court. Yet after three decades of honorable service, few know him beyond the contentious confirmation and surrounding media firestorm. Who is Justin Clarence Thomas, in his own words? In the follow-up to the widely successful documentary by the same name, Created Equal builds on dozens of hours of groundbreaking one-on-one interviews with Thomas to share a new, expanded account of his powerful story for the first time. Producer Michael Pack and Mark uh, Poletta, a lawyer who worked alongside Thomas during his confirmation, dive deep into the justice's story. Drawing on a rich array of historical documents and unreleased conversations with Thomas, his wife, and those who knew him best, created equal as a timeless account of faith, race, power, and the personal resilience. Review. Most biographies lay out a person's life from birth to present while covering all the big points and lesser-known events of the person's life in order to give you a more complete version of the person. Autobiographies do the same, 
but from that person's perspective, and you get a more focused and individual singular perspective. This book blends those in, in an interview setting while allowing the person to skip around to areas of interest or reading straight through. I read straight through in one sitting overnight. It was great. The style is done in interview style Q&A, but it doesn't read like a stale response and it doesn't operate in a gotcha style we're used to seeing in journalism today. It also doesn't shy away from focusing on big events that might be embarrassing, like the Anita Hill scandal. But it's also nice that it doesn't linger on salacious moments that could have been part of Thomas's life, if there are any. I was really impressed that Thomas's upbringing, and it shows a different attitude of America and Americans than we see today. Thomas goes through the life from a poor and segregated early life to going to seminary to being a leftist radical to going to law school and being converted away from leftism by the great Thomas Sowell. It was of a lot of information that I hadn't learned about before as an attack on Thomas by the left since since the early 90s wouldn't only bring him up as a race traitor, which just means he held rightish political beliefs. Of course, the book goes into his life and politics, his confirmation and the debacle that was, and his time on the bench. What we see in politics today in America is interesting to see that it's been the same old rhetoric with the same vying for power with no intention of doing the right thing. There are a few downsides to the section of the book that the interview could have maybe helped along in some asides to his questions. There are some topics that are law or constitution specific that may not be of immediate recall to the reader. Now, those topics are easy enough to be uh, web searched about, and you do get the gist of what they're talking about. But the interview also doesn't contrast Thomas's views to those judges on the left or even politicians who are passing these laws. And understandably why one wouldn't want to talk about his eight closest co-workers. In fact, there is little focuses on ben, uh, on Thomas's bench rulings other than his relationship with other judges, including his well-known friendship with Scalia. I guess one could say his written opinions talk about what he actually thinks, but you only get a sense of what he believes concerning what comes before him. For example, he talks about Scalia and him differing on the Fourth Amendment cases. The law nerds would love to read more about this conversation with the interview and Thomas. It's too bad that the section was so short. While Thomas's Catholic upbringing are clear throughout the book, digging deeper into his religious beliefs isn't done enough. When he divorces his first wife and when he remarries a non-Catholic second wife, or what he actually believes about God isn't really brought up. He talks about the structure the Roman Catholic Church gave him and his brother and his grandfather, and there are times when he mentions prayer and God, but this would have been an interesting compare and contrast with today's world versus even 50 years ago, especially in the Catholic Church. Overall, I really enjoyed this book and the style it was written in. Most of the biographies I read could stand to let their living subjects talk out their story of their life with an interviewer guide. Thomas's idea of libertarianism and Ayn Rand and Thomas Sowell were personal highlights, and it's interesting to see how a classical Republican like Thomas parallels with a radical freedom-liberty libertarian Republican like Ron Paul. I don't feel like Thomas was untrustworthy during the interview, but not really sure what that would look like. The author-interviewer does a good job of structuring the book as both a highlighting thumb-through or as a straightforward read. There are areas where he repeats or moves a section of Q&A to lend to other the structure, so a straight read-through might have points of reread, but they're not ex- excessive. This was a really enjoyable read. Final grade, A. Euro's Revenge, the Cliptic Series, by David Rue. Overview. Brian Zachs had enough of, on his plate. 
developing his skills as a spacecraft pilot and combat maneuvers specialist for Elwood's privateers, a small-time Martian defense company, and helping E.V. Evans, following privateer and his ex-lover, manage her nocturnal hallucinations of a raven-haired demon. When Elwood's treasure hunting hobby uncovered the lost secrets of an ancient cult, Brian and Evie were thrust in the center of an interplanetary conflict between the cult's present-day branches that threatened to append human, human civilization. Euro's Revenge is a sober, fantasy-tinged science fiction adventure. Review. A New Hope in Science Fiction. Indie Pub for the win. Euro's Revenge is an action sci-fi story that builds tension and mystery and then releases and reveals in satisfying, enjoyable ways. It almost forces you to continue to read on. The story involves characters who are just trying to make a living in the solar system by salvaging and treasure hunting. What they stumble into is the veil of the hidden world known only to a few but important to all. What starts as treasure hunting for abandoned technology turns into the greatest treasure hunt mankind has embarked on since the beginning. Balance of story element. All stories have elements of characters, plot, rising action, climax, falling actions, etc. Where some authors focus on world building to the detriment of the story or place action front and center with little room to breathe between scenes, room balances each element well. A change in setting allows for characters to reflect or communicate. This enables development and growth. What makes them feel more grounded in reality, they learn from what just happened or look forward to what will occur with the best laid plans. When those plans are put into action, the skirmishes unfold in a realistic way. They are over and done with and quickly, and damage is taken and assessed. The benefit of this is that the action tension moves at a great pace without replacing the story. This pacing makes the book more serialized, and in a space setting, this fits well. The Expanse of the Plot Room's ability to tell a good story is clear and imaginative. This is more than just demons in space. The use of biblical imagery builds up the story elements of Room's mythos without being the one-to-one knockoff that traditional publishing likes to do. For example, Room doesn't once use the word Nephilim when it would have been so easy to do. Instead, the greater background of the world allows the reader to ruminate on if the creatures encountered in the story have roots in such biblical narratives. Room might not have included all the details of the book purposely, but it's clear that the author has the world in the background flushed out. This is seen in the well-done exposition scenes. There aren't any cheap, as you all know, hack scenes we've seen Hollywood resorting to. He uses the ignorance of his characters, who are learning about the world they're entering, The explanation scenes make sense, and we, as the hidden observer, get to listen in. Such exposition also builds intrigue and drama, as you're not always sure whether what's being revealed is the truth or the full truth. The mixture of exposition, character building, and action scene makes the story flow and makes for a quick read because you're reading each of those interesting waves. The book doesn't need to explain all the details of ship propulsion in 22 pages for us nerds who enjoy that type of stuff, but Room gives you enough details that you realize you're in the future and in space, but you can still relate to the story and characters. Those who have the curtains pulled back. The cast of characters we follow through the story are from the future, but they're very normal characters. They're the same type of characters we relate to, even if they're capturing ghosts with proton packs or running from xenomorphs on a cramped spaceship. They're just regular folks trying to make a living before they stumble into a larger world. This approach makes the entry in the story for the reader occur quickly since the characters are relatable. Brian, the main character, is the foil for the audience. He is the new guy who's trying to figure it all out how to do the job while finding himself in a complicated relationship 
something we all have a lot of experience within our own lives or with those we know. When the main story hits, it hits quickly, and the confusion you feel as the reader is reflected in Brian and even some of his fellow crew members. Elwood, Bird, and Eric each stand out in being normal in extreme circumstances, even if there are special plot points about them. No one is an expert marksman without trying or who's able to take several bullets to the chest and just yell and continue to run around. They're also normal because they're good people who have their flaws. Brian becomes involved in a love triangle with Evie, the special female character that re-enters his life to throw a wrench into everything and makes some wrong choices. He's not a perfect paragon of virtue, even if you want him to be. Evie is no Mary Sue, but she's not a helpless damsel. She's the best shot of the team, but has a history of seeing demon-like characters at night in her room. Space demons? How can you not want to read about that? Evie is someone you understand why Brian wants to be around. She is not a shrill character who slingshots back and forth from loving to emotional, nor are you going to find her shaving one side of her head and calling for the death of all men. She's a soldier who can hold her own, but she's just a normal human being. Well, except she seems to be an important person in that secret cabal who's trying to use her for their own nefarious purposes. Christian fiction without the cringe. One of the fun aspects of Euro's Revenge is all the little jokes and relatable topics Christians would find entertaining. The different names of ships or or conversation characters have on the cessation of sign gifts show these characters to be realistic Christians who have their differences, but not to the detriment of their friendship. This helps with separating characters who are already up and running in their world. In similar fashion, the flaws of the characters, such as engaging in relationships outside of marriage or using bad language when the situation makes sense to use it, add to a sense of realism to the story. These make them feel like people and not entities who embody the author's belief of what Christian behavior should always be. It also causes you not to always trust a character, leaving you unable to always guess what will happen next. There are times when I would have thought characters would have made a bigger deal with big uh, revelations, like, for example, with a small spoiler, when the existence of the soul is confirmed. Maybe in a world where we live on Mars and have to deal with cults of power, those revelations would hit differently. I don't know. Room does so well in the use of Christian motifs in the story. It feels like a very possible unseen realm storyline that flows from a world which acknowledges that God is real and the supernatural has a special relationship with the physical world. Room doesn't just take the biblical story of Eden and use it for his own purpose and his own storyline. He builds a world that entities from that world would attempt to recreate an Eden-like power source again, and this might not be the first attempt. The book acknowledges God's ultimate story while setting the story in a futuristic world of spaceships, Mars colonies, and governments who overreach their mandates for greater power control. You know, fiction. Room provides some help with some possible character confusion with a flowchart at the beginning of the book. These characters appear later in the book, and I would have to refer to this a number of times. I still got lost at who was who and what was what. Those who have experienced and enjoy reading family tables and fantasy novels would scoff at my struggles, yet the story makes clear who I'm supposed to be rooting for or jeering at. A world still with questions. Euro's Revenge doesn't reveal all the secrets of the world, and one would expect at the conclusion of the novel for there to be more to the full story, one known only by the author and, capital A, author. Satisfying characters with a great mythos created on the backbone of the greatest story ever told allows us Christian readers to enjoy reading science fiction again. While this is a book written to appeal to Christians, this is able to be enjoyed by those 
who like a world to be built in a single novel with characters you understand and why you're rooting for them. The flow of the book reads like a mini roller coaster, and it's easy to stay up a bit too late at night to get to the next valley to breathe with the characters. Check out Euro's Revenge. Pick up this book and enjoy reading simply a good story. I read it with a small group of friends, which made the discussion of the book just as fun and dramatic as reading it the first time. We got our revenge on Euro's Revenge. Final grade, A. Grace at Work, Redeeming the Grind and the Glory of Your Job by Brian Campbell. Overview. For many people, their job is merely the daily grind needed to provide for family or pay for the bills. Yet, our work is a vital meaning for fulfilling God's purposes for our lives and displaying His grace to those around us. We bear God's image in our workplace, experiencing His blessings and expressing His nature through our efforts, integrity, creativity, generosity, and excellence. No earthly chore is without the opportunity to observe His divine hand. No challenge in task or in relationship is without opportunity to represent God's heart. In this book, author and pastor Brian Chappell uh, shares his biblical perspective on vocation, explaining how God gives purpose to our work by making it an instrument of his grace to our own hearts, as well as a way of bringing his goodness and glory into our world. Chappell explains how we can worship God by our work, rising above drudgery, duty, and self-interest with the understanding that our jobs are unique, calling for displaying God's character and care. Our work is worship, and when we see the glory beyond the grind, the mission in the mundane, and the grace at work. Ideal for Christians in the workplace, containing encouragement for those looking for purpose in their jobs biblically grounded. Chapel teaches how the gospel blesses attitudes and responsibilities relating to success, creativity, money, integrity, leadership, and even sin in the workplace. Kingdom-minded explains vocation in light of grace Christ provides to and through his people for blessing our world and bringing him glory. Review. What Chapel does here is something I have been enjoying Christian authors doing more these days. The talk is about taking the normal, everyday things as service to God. This is the redeeming part of the book. Chapel covers a whole array of different aspects of work. Dignity, purpose, integrity, money, success, humility, glory, evil, leadership, balance, and witness. This isn't self-help slapped onto Jesus. This is looking at different aspects of work through the lens of the Christian worldview. I believe God exists and he operates in the world and through his people. The part of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that sometimes people forget is verse 10. What are we saved by grace through faith for? Verse 10. For good works prepared for us in advance. And your daily work is exactly where you can find a plethora of good works. It is how we evidence our faith to the world. Jesus doesn't tell us to divorce ourselves from the world, but to live our lives in his name at our jobs. And our job is to search the scriptures in how to do this in the best way possible. That's the role of Chapel's book. There are some good parts Chapel covers really well. The chapter on humility had a portion where he covered Jesus as king, priest, and prophet. At first, it didn't make much sense, but he comes in towards the end of the chapter and applies the section to us and our work. That was a really nice surprise. He also covers the straightforward parts well, like integrity, where we understand the Christian should live so drastically different from the world that they take notice just for seeing us in our work. A tall order, but one we should desire. He also provides a lot of everyday examples and anecdotes to prove his point or show its antithesis. One of the areas that I wish Campbell would have focused on more was some of the hard cases. This is not to say that the book is devoid of that. He tells a story of an investor who refuses to take profit from setting up others on his team to make money on a business that he didn't agree with as a Christian. Chapel doesn't always go out of his way to talk about these hard cases and suggestions from scriptures on what to do in general. 
However, the purpose of the book is to give a redemption story to work, but it would still be useful to highlight a few more areas where the gray wants to encroach into our work lives. Or on one of the subjects I really wanted Chapel to cover was failing at work or failing in business or failing to succeed. We need to have ways of encouraging failure as not a complete end, but even failure can be redeemed. I would recommend this book for those who are struggling with work as a Christian or who are facing non-Christian resistance at work. Some might view this as middle-of-the-road Christian living reading, and it could be if you're not serious about taking what you read that is based on God's word into the areas of your life where Jesus rules. And as Christians, we should find those dark areas of our lives and shine the light of Christ on them as we recognize that Jesus is Lord of all, including our work. Final grade, B+. The Emotional Life of Our Lord, Crossway Short Classic Series by B.B. Warfield. Overview. Our Lord's emotions is a subject that Christians have often neglected and in doing so have deprived themselves of a virtual element in the gospel. Our Lord was truly human. He became, like us, sin apart. Warfield demonstrates that Christ was a man who expressed not just compassion, but also anger. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, and yet a man of joy. He was sometimes amazed at times. He felt shame. Warfield teaches readers how to read the Gospels properly, to see that Jesus, in his full divinity and full humanity, is central to every story. Review. I've been liking the series from Crossway Shorts Classics. They provide a snippet of a longer book from an influential Christian and talk about who the person was, what the settings they were writing in or against, and an overview of the longer book. This encourages some readers who may want to have more than your average taste for a book before committing oneself to the longer work. The opening of the book covers B.B. Warfield as a person, what the writing is the rest of the book shows about Warfield, that he is both a great scholar and a great preacher of God's word. Having Sinclair Ferguson pen the forward is just a great choice to show that Warfield is not just a scholar. An interesting point that Ferguson points out is how much the fuller book is invested in citation and how well read Warfield was. This was in a day and age where citations weren't just uh, plopping them in from Logos or Zotero. What's interesting about that is that the passage from Warfield feels like a book that would exist in today's world is the make me feel good about being a Christian books where citations is low and rhetoric is more valued. In this short work, Warfield command of both sets are on display and the purpose is to give a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and how he responds emotionally in the, his earthly ministry and what we can learn from that. Change our lives to conform to that and be in awe of the man, God, Jesus Christ, who is our chief example. Warfield covers a number of emotions such as love, compassion, anger, sadness, grief, indignation, and a few others. While love is where Warfield starts, and rightly so, he makes some really interesting observations such as the Synoptic Gospels only attribute love to Jesus just one time, but compassion often, whereas John doesn't use compassion of Jesus once, but love many, many times. This is where knowing the history of the person writing and when they are writing is important, and it's something that I don't think the introduction hits on as fully as it should. Warfield, writing during the response to the liberal movement of Christianity in the 20th century and the desire to respond to God is love and that's all he is, causes this topic to be much needed. Warfield writes in response to is love is seen here, but not from the theology standpoint, from, from a viewpoint of what does the man God Jesus Christ love and how does he love is the topic at hand. The answering of 
And that's all he is, is covered then with other emotions, especially anger and grief. Warfield really drills down on the point of the writers of the gospel, observing and then writing down Jesus responding to certain people in anger. This is not just the Pharisees, mind you. Warfield speaks of the compassion Jesus has for sinners, but also the anger for those who, for example, he knows will not follow his command to tell anyone and sends them away in anger. At the very least, this provides a fuller picture of who Jesus is and not some hallmark, always with a slight smile, Jesus, we can invent in our heads. That path clearly leads down the same path the liberals of the 20th century wanted to take, but were foiled by people like Warfield. It's the same path current day God accepts everyone, no matter what liberal churches use when co-opting the gospel message. Warfield's discussion on the grief of Jesus is superb here. His discussions on Jesus' grief for his mother, wailing at the foot of the cross, is a great showing of the juxtaposition of scholar and preacher he is. This is a short book like the rest of the series, but gives you you get a great glance at the brilliant man of God we owe so much to. It's not a book that handholds you with self-help slogans, but gives you focus to an element of scripture that is given so that you might continue in your sanctification process. Let us conform our hearts to the heart of Jesus Christ, who feels and emotes and responds, but without sin. That is our goal. Final grade, A. Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. Overview. Jason Dezen is walking home through the chilly Chicago streets one night, looking forward to a quiet evening in front of the fireplace with his wife, Daniela, and their son, Charlie, when his reality shatters. Are you happy with your life? Those are the last words Jason Dezen hears before the masked abductor knocks him unconscious. Before he awakens, he finds himself strapped to a gurney, surrounded by strangers in hazmat suits. Before a man Jason's never met smiles down at him and says, Welcome back, my friend. In this world he's woken up to, Jason's life is not the one he knows. His wife is not his wife, his son was never born, and Jason is not an ordinary college physics professor, but a celebrated genius who has achieved something remarkable, something impossible. Is it this world or the others that's the dream? And even if the home he remembers is real, how can Jason possibly make it back to the family he loves? The answer lies in a journey more wondrous and horrifying than anything he could have imagined, one that will force him to confront the dark parts of himself, even as he battles a terrifying, seemingly unbeatable foe. Review. The writing. In about 300 pages, the first thing you'll notice about Crouch's prose is that he writes in almost single sentences, which makes reading through this fly. I'm no English doctor, so I'm sure there's some reason for it. Maybe it's in playwright form, uh, but it seems to only keep when focusing on the first-person perspective of the main character. It really keeps you moving, though, even during the high-act moments. The plot. This is a typical story of the multi-universe where one can get lost in the science and logic. Crouch puts just enough science in it to make it believable enough and hurts your head with enough logic, or lack thereof, to keep the purpose of the story from going astray. Sometimes when reading these types of stories and the story stalls or the reader's attention, when the main character either takes too much time before the experiencing the multiverse or too much time not believing he's experiencing the multiverse, that's was slightly what's experienced here. What this book does is that it, to use an overused expression, provides a roller coaster. That is not to say that the time between exposition and action isn't done well, as the author really does hold tension well and releases it. The type of main character we follow necessitates a need not to be super Rambo. The roller coaster is this book follows the tropes of a multi-universe story, but what it turns out to be is a really great story of a loving relationship. One of a man for his wife, a man for his son, and a man for his family. The Relationships The book really shines in the last third, which 
almost makes the story seem like two different stories. The somewhat focus on the family storyline is there in the first two-thirds of the book, but the emphasis isn't there as much. I'm not sure if this is a deficiency as much as it is purposeful. Whatever way, the reward is the finale. My only qualm with the portion is there are a few lines towards the end where Crush doesn't seem to trust the audience enough to get the point he's making, and there's almost a full house wrap-up explanation of, just like in life, it's about the choices you make. I guess this could follow the feeling of the main character and the need to express this sentimentality, but it did feel very Saturday morning cartoon lesson. There's also more of a focus on the main character's relationship with his wife and less on his son. As a sucker for a good father-son story, it would have been nice to hear more pining for his son and the relationship he had with him. Why does God need a tesseract? What we don't find discussed at all is how the makeup of the multiverse includes all permutations just happens to come about. There's no discussion of God. A similar type of storyline would be the classic TV show, Quantum Leap. Even there, the writers, writing back in the 90s, when you still had to think about these things, attributed the clear, the clearly not random leaping of Sam Beckett was because of God, time, or whatever. Here, even the world between worlds, there are rules that govern outcomes. To be fair, the, the glancing over a lot of the timey-wimey sciencey stuff is on purpose, but this type of infinite worlds is a needed characteristic for evolutionists who come to beat the odds for random mutation to come up with a world in which we live in. The reader should be aware there is some cursing and sex outside of marriage in a fair type of way. The character knowingly sleeps with a parallel version of his wife, who is not his wife. The wife is well unknowingly uh, does so with the version of her husband she doesn't know is her husband. The outcomes are pretty much hand-waved away in the last act of the book and seem to undercut the ultimate theme of the book of love for the one knows no bounds. In a world of infinite rolls of the dice, what are relationships and love other than just the universe bouncing molecules together? What are relationships without a creator? What is marriage without the covenant maker? Summary. Dark Matter by Blake Crouch is really a great example of what sci-fi is supposed to do. Provide a lesson or a touch point for life we live in a story that allows for the drama of the paranormal. What starts out as a multiverse story turns into a multiverse story with a really good relationship and life choices matter story. would really recommend the story with the caveat that if you find the story just a normal story of the multiverse, that the payout is the latter half. Final grade, A-. Sheltering Mercy, Prayers Inspired by the Psalms Ryan Whitaker Smith and Dan Walt Overview Sheltering Mercy helps us rediscover the rich treasure of the Psalms through a free verse prayer rendering of their poems and hymns as a guide to personal devotion and meditation. The church has always used Psalms as part of their prayer life, and they have inspired countless other prayers. This book contains 75 prayers drawn from Psalm 1 through 75, providing lyrical sketches of what the author Ryan Smith and Dan Wilt have seen, heard, and felt while sojourning in the Psalms. With each prayer corresponding to a particular Psalm and touches on the themes and ideas, it is not a new translation of the Psalms or an attempt to modernize the contextualize their context or prayer or content or language. Rather, the prayers are responses to the Psalms written in harmony with Scripture. These prayers help us quiet our hearts before God and welcome us to a safe place Amid the Storms of Life, this artful, poetic, and classical devotion book features compelling custom illustrations and foil-stamped hardcover bindings, offering a fresh way to reflect on prayer of, and pray this review. This book is not scripture, and it does not take the Psalms and rewrite them for modern audiences. What this book does is what we should see being done by a greater number of Christian artists. 
being inspired and using the inspiration of God's revealed word to communicate truths from the outpouring of his revelation. We use this as a family devotion of sorts. We would read the psalm and communicate that the psalm in question was God's inspired word to use. We would talk about what the psalm meant for the reader and the author at the time and what its implications are for us on this side of the cross. We would then read from this book with the understanding that this was inspired by inspired by God's revelation, but it was not in this inspired word. For young kids who have, haven't experienced the full perils of the world yet, the first 75 psalms make for a good introduction of what can come about in the world and where we can turn to. The Christian experience isn't to just smile through the pain of life, shrug our shoulders at the unfairness of those who do wrong, or have no complaint when we face hardships. Our goal is to rely on God and his word as the source of making sense of those evils. What is evil without an objective truth or an ultimate good? It is nothing more than preferring chocolate ice cream to vanilla or all books of poetry. Like all books of poetry, there are some you'll like and some you won't. There will be some that help at times and some that will help later. What is really nice about this book is that it isn't a one-to-one correlation between the psalm it's inspired by and what's written. The theme or themes of the psalm is imbued in the section, but it's a new thing, a new prayer that follows the keystrokes along the path of the psalm. It also doesn't stick to just the words of the Old Testament, but weaves in verses, themes, and theology of the New Testament. Exactly what you would expect from Christian art being inspired by God's word. While this book wouldn't be for everyone, it is a book worth considering, especially for those who want to produce good Christian art. Not everything has to be an altar call message where the atheist either comes to salvation or rues the day he ever challenged God and his people. This is a Christian art we need to see based on living in God's word and being renewed people of worship. Final grade, A-. Against All Oppositions, Defending the Christian Worldview by Greg Bonson, here tomorrow. Overview. We must not be satisfied to present Christianity as the most reliable position to hold among the competing options available. Rather, the Christian faith is the only reasonable outlook available to men. Greg Bonson. Based on the lectures that Dr. Bonson gave to the students in 1991, this book clearly and simply shows to defend the Christian faith. An apologetic method methodology that claims Christians should be open, objective, and tolerant of all opinions when they defend the Christian faith is like a person who plans to stop a man from committing suicide by taking the hundred-story plunge with him, hoping to convince the lost soul on the way down. No one in their right mind would make such a concession to foolishness, but Christians do it all the time when they adopt the operating presuppositions of unbelievers. There are no neutral assumptions about reality. The starting position is the God of the Bible— the Bible begins with a foundational presupposition. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Against all opposition lays out the definitive apologetic method to help believers understand the biblical method of defending the Christian faith. Review. For a full breakdown of this book, chapter by chapter, you can check out cavetothecross.com as we uh, went through this book in 2022. This is a primer for those wishing to check out the presuppositional methodology apologetics from one of the most well-known apologists, Greg Bonson. This review is coming from someone who has read and identified his presuppositions for several years. Now, so this, this review will be skewed in that direction. To give a meta overview, this is coming from the lectures of Greg Bonson gave to his students so the structure might not be uh, seen as full-fledged and complete as a primer would be. Gary DeMar gives an introduction into the contents as well as the man. However, the book needed an epilogue where it summed up the contents or encouraged the reader to check out more or something about the change in apologetics from 1991 or the book published. However, the book just ends. A discussion on other religion worldviews is and then the end. Even just a thanks for checking it out postscript would have been something. So since the book is lecture, the critique of the flow 
and content might be a bit off. Still, the first part of the book, chapters 1 through 7, give an overview of presuppositionalism, and the second part, chapters 8 through 11, are looking at competing worldviews. I would have liked to see a bit more and dive deep into the concepts of the first half. There is uh, some very Bonson takes on epistemology, uh, how we know what we know, but it would have been even better to have a deeper dive into faith as an epistemology. There is some lack of answering critiques uh, against the methodology. However, Bonson, per usual, establishes the point that a non-neutral start on both sides take place, and to believe otherwise either gives up too much ground or the other person, or it's just plain wrong. The encouragement for the Christian to reason from his or her basic worldview in the understanding of the Bible being the necessary starting point is honed in. The second part of the book is fine, where the comparison between the Christian worldview and the others is done, along with the internal critique on Islam, Mormonism, Hare Krishnas, etc. I can understand the help that it is and why it was done, but it does seem to be a different book or could have been worked into other chapters. Again, with this being lectures originally, that may not mean a lot. And the critique of atheism, chapter 8, gives a lot of great points that the problem of induction, deduction, uh, inference, and materialism critique makes a lot of great points. I would put this up there with others for getting uh, people interested and used to the presuppositional method, others including uh, The Ultimate Proof for Creation by Jason Lyle and one that uh, Cave of the Cross has also done, Finding Truth by Nancy Piercy. Overall, a well-rounded orientation for a man who did amazing work and needed to write more, but inspired many to fill the spot. Final grade, B+. Omela's Revisited by C.S. Johnson. Overview. Could you live a perfect life knowing someone else took on all your pain and despair? Skyla has always lived a perfect, happy life, just like everyone in her community. Even if there are brief moments where she is certain that she has experienced pain and regret, those moments are brief and quickly forgotten. But when Aiden, Skyla's next-door neighbor, reveals the truth of the community and their perfect lives, Skyla is faced with an unexpected choice regarding her future. Will her actions lead her community to a better life, or will she doom them all? Join Skyla and Aiden in their thought-provoking novella inspired by Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. Review. I have not read Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, but I know the basis of the story and the utopian dystopian plot. And I know that uh, Star Trek Stranger Worlds uh, took the story, and that's why that was one of the good episodes, because they finally found a story that they could steal from. Also, having read stories like The Giver series by uh, Lois Lowry, I'm primed for my first C.S. Johnson novella. Johnson does a great job in a short amount of time of space setting up absolutely everything you need to know if you have no clue about Le Guin's uh, parent book. You get to know the characters and who they are uh, to their world and uh, to the inner rebels they are. I'm not looking for soliloquies and existential ponderings fleshed out fully in the short work of fiction, but there is enough meat to provide a great conversation on other stories in this world, or even pick up the original story. The young characters make an attempt of an idyllic solution to the main drama of the story, while also allowing the naive young love allows for. The story gets you in and gets you out with good and proper storytelling, and like all good authors, make you want more, even if that means tying up a kid for the good of all readers. I think that was the moral of the story, right? We'll definitely be checking out more of C.S. Johnson's work. Always check out more indie pubs. Final grade, A-. Thank you for joining me uh, for uh, the books that I've read and completed uh, at the, this time. Uh, I always try and uh, keep up with um, Tim Challies on his uh, uh, reading list, and 
I uh, probably do about half of what he does. So um, uh, if, if you want more, I'll, I'll leave a link on, on how to kind of set up uh, your reading year for the new year. And I hope you join us uh, in opening up Frames book that we're going to start at the first of the year. See you next time.